Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast with myself, Galen Stops. And I've got a fantastic guest on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be joined by Dagmara Fialkowski, Head of Global Fixed Income and Currencies at RBC Global Asset Management. Dagmara, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Galen. Thank you for having me. Dagmara, I had a specific reason beyond your wealth of expertise in the currency markets for inviting you on this podcast. And that's because I wanted to discuss a rather thought-provoking article that you wrote regarding what's been a major and ongoing initiative within the FX industry, and that's the FX Global Code of Conduct. More specifically, I want to probe you on why the adoption of the code has lagged amongst some of your buy-side peers, and if there's anything that can be done to change this. But we'll get into the code stuff in just a minute. To kick us off, I actually have a slightly broader question for you. The opening sentence, I think, of your article talks about how FX is the largest and most liquid market in the world, yet is also one of the least understood. Why do you think this is? Well, it's a good question. And I feel, you know, having been in FX market for over 20 years, I ask myself that because it doesn't seem that that awareness is increasing. But think about it from the perspective of how different it is from the market that clients generally deal with, equity markets in particular, but also to some extent fixed income markets. It's a very large over-the-counter market that operates 24 hours a day. There is a difference there, right? And across multiple jurisdictions and multiple participants from very small corporates accessing it through uh, the relationship with dealers to very large corporates, institutional clients, pension fund, asset managers, and central banks, right? And the very representatives like reserve managers. So as a result, these $2 trillion of daily spot turnover, in addition to about $5 trillion of derivative turnover, makes it sound overwhelming. I also use the word derivative. So large portion of effects, even if we think about it as a very simple derivatives, currency forwards, is a derivative trading. So that adds to a bit of apprehension among people who are just watching the market, not participating in it. And of course, always affects drivers, right? Your basic economics course is telling you that FX is driven by multitude of different factors. So there's confusion around there. So I think given its breadth, depth, involvement of derivatives, Global access 24 hours, it just seems overwhelming for people who are not accessing it every day. I haven't even mentioned the quoting thing, right? <laughs> when some, some currencies are quoted in units of dollars and others is the dollar traded in units of other currencies, yeah. which confuses a lot of people to begin with, right? Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point. Similar to what we see, right? 360T, we have such a diverse client range. And they're all interacting with the FX market in different ways to achieve different objectives. Not so, all of them for profit, right? Because exactly. Of the transactional necessity. So starting to think about the code slightly now, let's talk about the history of it first, which is the FX Global Code of Conduct. The creation of it was prompted by malfeasance within the marketplace. 
and let's be honest, this was more on the sell side. But do you think that the industry more broadly has kind of cleaned up its act since we've had these issues and since the development of the code? I think so. If I go back in my memory, how the market operated 10, 15 years ago, and what types of information was shared, whether this is over the phone conversations or in chat room, there has been a significant change that we have observed in approach to privacy of client information and protection of client information. What was common in those days was either the direct use of, you know, we have a large order from a large central bank, some type of language like this, which wasn't really protecting anyone and was uh, sending information broadly about the levels where stops are or take profits. We haven't seen that. Certainly, this behavior has been eradicated. I would also say that as a client that routinely leaves stops and take profit orders in the market, maybe less stops and more often take profits. We don't see those in illiquid times behavior that suggests running stops uh, in the market. Also, looking at fair treatment of all clients. So a recent example, there was an unexpected holiday declared to the Queen's funeral. And uh, because transactions that were put on the books in advance of that, traders didn't know that there will be a holiday, they had to make a decision whether price will be adjusted, date will be shifted with adjustment or without adjustment. And it's fine to use one or the other as long as this convention is used across all clients that deal with particular dealers. I think now, in presence of the code, we would expect that. 15 years ago, I would say it would be up to your own negotiation skills. Okay. Uh, and awareness that you are in the right to ask for clarification and have certain expectations of that fair treatment. These may not be headline-producing changes in behavior, but these are subtle, consistent, and broad. And I believe they stem from the adoption of the code more broadly. Thinking about the creation of the code, what was RBC Global Asset Manager's role in helping to draft it? And sort of also more broadly, how involved were the sort of quote-unquote, and this is a, a broad segment of the market, but how involved were the buy side generally? So RBC Global Asset Management was one of the buy-side participants invited by the Bank of Canada to be part of the working group. Other members of the working group were sell-side participants. And that was, I think, in 2015 or so. So at each country level, there were 16 central banks that organized similar working groups combined buy-side and sell-side participants, discussing practices, the principles, and what should be the principle established by the code. So it was a very broad effort, again, coordinated by central banks, but involving buy- and sell-side participants from various jurisdictions. And was there kind of a lot of buy-side input, not just from yourselves, but from kind of the buy-side community broadly? into what created the final version of the code? 
Yes, certainly. And I think that was also the difference in involvement of the buy side at the national foreign exchange committee's levels. Because at least I know that in Canada, prior to the work on development of the code, BuySide was not involved in the Canadian Foreign Exchange Committee. It was only ah. working on the code that BuySide was invited to the table and became a regular participant there. Okay, interesting. One of the key characteristics of the code, right, is that it is principles-based and also that it is a voluntary thing. It doesn't have the status of regulation. There are no regulatory compliance issues or fines that can be levied against firms for not complying with it. My question is, do you think that the code suffers or benefits more from being voluntary rather than a piece of regulation? Because I can see both sides, right? The fact that it's voluntary and principles-based gives it a flexibility. Once something's written down as a piece of regulation, it can be very inflexible. And having it this way, the code, you know, they talked about it being a living document and how it's going to evolve alongside the FX market and will continue perfecting it. So that's the advantage. I think the disadvantage is when I'm a large organization and I have so many compliance burdens across the organization and I have a finite number of resources, I'm going to focus on things that actually have financial or regulatory consequences for me rather than a voluntary thing that I don't have to do. So what's your view on kind of the benefits or not of it being voluntary? In terms of benefits of the code being voluntary rather than regulatory, I guess there are benefits of both approaches, as you pointed out. You know, with the regulation, you know for sure that everybody will spend some resources there. I'd like to think that there are some benefits from the code being voluntary, because when I think about regulatory obligations, the first instinct is, what's the requirement of the law? Let's make sure that we follow the letter of the law and we do everything that's required by the law. Whereas when I think about voluntary document, I think the approach is more, what's the intention? What is the spirit of the code? And that's also encouraged by the proportionality rule that we have adopted. When we ask participants to adhere to the code, they have to evaluate their own business and look at all the principles and evaluate which principles are relevant in their business. Because, of course, some principles were geared towards sell side only, and the buy side doesn't have the type of business, so these principles don't apply. So I think when you have to think about the spirit and the intention of the code, it actually allows you to surface things that potentially aren't even addressed in the code. But when you review all your processes, you would use the same idea that what is the fair and transparent contribution towards FX market in this behavior. So I think this can be the advantages of the code being voluntary. But in some cases, you can actually take it beyond and use common sense and logic where what the intention is of the code. Okay. And now I want to tie this back into your article. Obviously, buy-side adoption of the code has lagged behind sell-side and a lot of technology and infrastructure partners like 360T has signed onto the code. And there's been quite a focus on how can we get more buy-side firms to sign up. In your article, you list some of the reasons why buy-side firms haven't signed up to the code. And these are ones I've heard a million times over since the launch of the code, right? That there's limited compliance resources. FX is only a small part of what they do. 
the code is only relevant to the sell side and not so much the buy side. They want to prioritize real regulation. I loved this line in your article, though. After you list these reasons, you then say, uh, having worked as a portfolio manager for more than 20 years, I find this perplexing. Can you just expand on a little bit and tell me why you find these reasons perplexing or they don't quite sit with you? Well, all the counter markets like FX are based on relationships and trust, and it should not be one-sided. So to me, it's like the very basic thing. If we require our counterparties to have signed the code, which we do from the year that we signed the code, we do not deal with any counterparties that have not signed the code, then it's only fair that I also sign the code to make sure that I put the similar proportionately requirements on myself. When I've talked to people in the past about why buy-side firms should adhere to the code and should publicly adopt it, I'll be honest, a lot of the responses I've got have tend to be high-level, vague, you know, everyone benefits from a fairer, more transparent market, or you know, this is industry-accepted best practice, etc. One of the things I loved about your article was that you actually laid out tangible ways in which the code has helped RBC Global Asset Management specifically, and then also by extension benefited your clients. Can you just please walk the listeners through some of those tangible benefits that you've been able to derive? Yes. And I think as we have gone through reviews of the second version of the code, Mm -hmm. it even more stood in my mind. So the first thing is, of course, that the code gave us the framework for evaluating our internal policies and procedures, again, involved in every aspect of the FX execution, from setting up the trades to accessing the market, executing in the market, settling, following up with risk management. And so this is the framework for reviewing the entire process that helped us see what the best practices are potentially and how can we improve these processes where there are gaps where both potentially improvement would be warranted. The second thing was about training and education of our staff. And again, not just traders who execute the transaction, but staff that are involved in every aspect of the trade including trade support and accounting and compliance and risk management. And that's not to be underestimated, you know. If we're hiring young people who are accessing the market or working in that capacity for the first time, they need education. That historically has happened through working with someone senior who's going to tell you what's what. (laughs) (laughs) But if that person has not been taught properly themselves, or they forget to tell you about something, the code provides a really comprehensive document because it's not just we'll do the right thing. It's over 70 pages of in-depth description of the market. And we made it an obligatory onboarding reading for our staff when they hired. For the existing staff, it also helped evaluate our stance in the FX transaction, what is it that we are entitled to require of our counterparties? What kind of information, transparency, how we can access the market, 
how should we communicate to make sure that there is no misunderstanding. So this helped educate and empower our staff to have certain expectations of the counterparties. And of course, the first expectation is that we only deal with counterparties that signed the code. And as I already mentioned, you know, the fact that the code is leaving document updated every three years, it helps us continuously improve both our processes, procedures, and training of staff. So overall, it gave us higher confidence in our governance framework for FX execution and overall best execution in the firm. One quick question there, which is you've mentioned a couple of times now that you only work with counterparties that have signed and are committed to the code. Have you found in in your experience, has that limited you at all in terms of the number of counterparties you can deal with? Well, to be fair, being on the buy side, it's much easier to (laughs) meet that requirement, right? Because the sell side were encouraged, let's put it this way. (laughs) to adopt the code quickly by the central banks. So for us, being a large asset manager, we have the luxury of being approached by many banks that want to deal FX with us. So making that a requirement, I think within six months of that requirement, all our counterparties were signatories. And I'm not saying that because of our requirement of pressure on them, to do that. And so for us as a buy side, it's a hygiene factor, but it's not a hygiene factor that put us at a disadvantage in accessing the market. Gotcha. So Dagmar, I left the hardest question for last. How can we as an industry help to drive greater buy side adoption of the code? And what I mean by this is does the impetus need to come from investors going to buy side firms and say, I want you to adhere to the code? Do investors know enough about FX markets to demand that? Is it realistic to expect sell-side firms to put pressure on their clients to do this? At 360T, we announced code compliance requirements on our ECN, 360T, GTX. Do platform providers have to help move the needle? Or does the impetus have to come from within buy-side firms themselves? So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Well... This is why I'm part of a working group with the Global Foreign Exchange Committee trying to figure out all the ways in which we can encourage more buy-side participants to learn about the code and adopt the code, right? It's a slow process, and I think it will require multiple efforts. So one of the reasons why we're having this conversation, and I thought that this is a good idea, was that the more asset managers and corporations hear the perspective of their peers that have adopted the code, the more perhaps it triggers their consideration of adopting the code. And I think it should be more carrots than sticks, more highlighting of what adoption of the code does for us in addition to, well, it contributes to fairer, transparent, more robust markets, which of course we all want to have. Actions like 360 did with the platforms enabling access to certain pools to facilitate transactions with only adherents of the code. That's one good idea. I think another idea that we'll probably see more of 
is making end users of asset management business investors aware of existence of the code, comprehensive reach of the code, and what it means for best execution so that they can ask their asset managers, if you haven't signed the code, why? <laughs> and maybe there is going to be more pressure from that perspective. Because I think the answer, oh, it's too much work or it's not relevant to our business is going to thin fairly quickly. Give it to your investor. I agree. Dagmar, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about, I think, what is a very important topic of the industry. And good luck with your ongoing work on this topic. I think you've got your work cut out for it, but I've got no doubt you're up to the task. Thank you very much, Galen. And to our listeners, please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T Podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.